Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. This week, I'll be talking to our correspondent in Delhi about the surprise departure of the governor of the Reserve Bank of India, India's central bank. It does raise some, some perplexing questions. It doesn't say very much for the quality of leadership in India. Andrew Palmer will be asking, is executive pay out of control? Basically, whenever the state intervenes in the pay-setting process, companies find a way to game it, pay keeps going up. And we'll be seeing if big data could be big business in the fast-growing field of genomics. You know, this, this data is growing and the promise is, is enormous, absolutely enormous. First, we're headed to Delhi. Raghuram Rajan has been in charge of the RBI, India's central bank, since 2013. One of the most respected bank governors in the world, he'd earned plaudits for predicting the 2008 financial crash. And since taking office, he's been widely praised for his stewardship of the Indian economy. But his criticism of the Indian government, though usually guarded, had caused some complaints. This week, he resigned, declaring in a letter to employees of the Reserve Bank that he had always been a man of ideas, more suited to the academic world. But he also admitted that discussions with the government had played a part in his decision to leave. So why is he going and what does it mean for the future of the world's fifth largest economy? To discuss Mr. Rajan's departure, I'm joined by Max Rodenbeck, our correspondent in Delhi. Max, uh, first, what's the response been to the news of Mr. Rajan's resignation? Well, I think the response to, to, from the markets, there was a, a lot of people had anticipated that the markets would respond very, very badly. But when, when the markets opened on Monday, and the response was not as dramatic as, as might have been thought. But in general, the financial industry had been pretty unhappy with his abrupt uh, resignation. The news came as quite a surprise, didn't it? Uh, Mr. Adan had been doing quite well as central bank chief, hadn't he? Yes, not a very long tenure. I mean, he'd been central bank chief for three years. But in that time, he'd done a very good job of taming inflation. The central bank reserves had gone up. He'd initiated some important reform measures, but he'd also stepped on some some important toes. That seems to be the real problem. So tell us a bit more about the toe-stepping. Who did he offend and how unusual were his comments? There are two important groups that were not happy with him. One of the things that he did earlier this year was to bring out into the open the scale of bad debts held by particularly public sector banks. And so there was obviously a reaction from some of these people and also from some of the people that, that owe them money. That includes some of India's biggest, biggest industrial groups not happy about having their dirty laundry exposed, more or less. So one group of people was the bankers. The, the other was people in the ruling party, BJP. It has a, a, a kind of core right-wing element, which was not very happy with Rajan, who was seen as too... Uh, too smooth, uh, culturally Western kind of person. And also, I mean, it has to be said that uh, typically in India, central bank heads have been rather gray figures with no, no real public profile. And Rajan was very different from that. He gave lots of interviews and did quite a lot of public speaking. And during these interviews and public speaking, he was always very reserved and very careful in what he said. 
certainly uh, about you know, things like monetary policy. But he was fairly outspoken also uh, in, in criticizing the government in very broad terms. He was very clearly not a yes man for the government. So what does his departure mean? What, what can we expect in terms of differences in monetary policy or a different approach on, on the banks, for example? In terms of, in terms of monetary policy, I suspect there would not be a, a substantial change. But it would be very interesting to see whether the pressure on public sector banks uh, to settle their, their bad loan situation and the pressure on, on industries to repay their loans, if that pressure lessens, it will be a sign that this may have been the crucial problem uh, for, for Rajan. And basically, it will be you know, the most powerful people in, in, in India pulling together to protect themselves. More broadly, what does this tell us about the government's commitment to reform? Well, it, it does raise some, some perplexing questions. The government does understand that, I, I, and I think they will, they will try to take action to show that they're still very serious about being open to business and, and, and reform. But at the same time, this seems to show that the government is really rather thin-skinned. I mean, that's a bit disturbing, that the government that can't take some really pretty straight and broad and well-meant and well-placed criticism from a senior figure such as, such as Rajan, if that was enough to upset the government, then it doesn't say very much for the quality of leadership in India. Max Rodenbeck, thank you very much. You can get in touch to give your views on this on Twitter. We're at Economist Radio now. The gap in pay between an American CEO and the average worker was 40 to 1 in the 1980s. It's now estimated to be somewhere between 150 to 1 and 350 to 1. That raises profound questions about whether the market and executive pay is able to regulate itself efficiently, as well as broader questions of fairness. Politicians are taking up the cudgels. The deck is still stacked in favor of those already at the top. And the people in my block, if they do, they perform poorly, they get fired. Yeah, that's They certainly don't get a bonus. There's something wrong when CEOs make 300 times more than the typical worker. And you see these guys making these enormous amounts of money. It's a total and complete joke. With me to rake over this topic is Andrew Palmer, business affairs editor. First, Andrew, why is executive pay back in the headlines? Well, one of the reasons you've already touched on, which is rising concern about income inequality and senior executive pay and the pay of managers and supervisors and financial professionals, explains about 70% of the growth uh, in income inequality. So as that has risen up the political agenda, so people have zeroed in on executive pay. But the other thing that's happened in the last few months is that we've seen a disconnect between the performance of companies and the pay that their managers still get. And that's got shareholders particularly riled. So we've seen in Britain and across continental Europe a series of dissenting votes against companies for their pay policies. Are the dissenting shareholders right? I mean, is there a proper market for executives? There isn't, I don't think. I mean, it's not it's not completely rigged. There are prices for the pay of CEOs that you can observe, thanks to disclosure, and shareholders themselves wield more power than they, they used to. But it's a really odd market in many, many ways. The incentives are slightly skewed, so individual executives want to get paid more, but companies quite like to pay over the odds in order to signal that they're not hiring duds and that they have above average ambitions. And we don't know some answers to some very fundamental questions like what value does a CEO add? We don't actually know. And it's very hard to unravel that. And what is the incentivizing effect of pay is another question that sort of underpins all of the compensation debate. But actually, we don't know exactly what it does. So, so it sounds like it's very hard to tell whether in some 
absolute abstract sense, CEOs are being paid the right amount. But but clearly, there are some upset shareholders out there. You know, should should they be doing more? Are they the ones who are responsible for keeping CEO pay in check? There are always going to be agency problems. It'll be hard for them to control um, exactly what's going on within the companies. And the boards that do that job for them, ostensibly, are often themselves at a disadvantage to executives and are captured by those executives. On the other hand... Um, even as shareholders kind of exercise more power to try and uh, align pay and performance, what happens is that is that pay continues to go up. So they may sign up off on things that look great on paper, things that, for example, measure the performance of a company relative to um, to the peers of that that company. But that can result in situations, and we've seen it this year, where, for example, with BP, the oil firm, where you have a gigantic payout to the CEO, um, even though the company has done badly, because that CEO has been rewarded on the basis of relative performance. So BP, for example, did very badly, but because it still outperformed other peers, the payout was triggered. So there are these complexities in the shareholder-approved pay packages that can lead to these odd odd outcomes, and shareholders themselves are waking up to that and not feeling particularly pleased by it. So if we've got a market that's not working very well, where the obvious actors, the shareholders, struggle to to assert themselves, normally in situations like this, the obvious other candidate to intervene would be the state, wouldn't it? Is that a good solution in this instance? Probably not. Whenever the state tries to intervene in executive pay, the outcome has been unintended. So the most famous example of this is Bill Clinton in the 1990s, tried to rein in executive pay, but left a gigantic loophole in the form of stock options, which companies then walked through very happily, uh, and pay exploded in a way that it hasn't since. And there are other examples of this too. So basically, whenever the state intervenes in the pay setting process to try and rein things in, companies find a way to game it, pay keeps going up. Oh dear. So, so if shareholders can't assert themselves, politicians can't craft rules cleverly enough to, to rein the problem in. Is there any way out at all? So the logic is probably a post hoc one. So rather than the state getting involved in the setting of pay, they intervene afterwards through the tax system. Um, so, you know, really, I think where we're heading with the logic of this is that even if you hand shareholders more more power, you're still going to have um, problems of income inequality. You're still going to have problems of very high quantums of pay. Um, and that argues for higher marginal tax rates uh, on executives. The tax system, I think, in the end, is the only way to really address this. Andrew Palmer, thank you very much. If you have any thoughts on executive pay, there's email as well as Twitter. Just send a message to radio at economist.com. Now we take a look at how technological change in the field of genomics is driving big paydays for investors. A little over 60 years ago, a scientific journey began. With the human genome providing endless valuable data for doctors and pharmaceutical firms, companies like Illumina in San Diego are driving a rapid expansion in the sale and use of this technology. Hope and confidence that it will lead to a better world. I'm joined by our healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder, who's been following the progress of the industry. Natasha, first of all, when we talk about genomics data, what are we talking about? What, what does the data look like? It looks like a sequence of letters, but it's just a code. It's what we're made of. It's what all living things are made of is this DNA code. And we're starting to decode that code very rapidly. And that's kind of getting quite exciting because there's a revolution in data production going on at the moment. So can you give me an example of the sort of the 
medical use of, of some of this data that we're, we're now managing to decode, as you put it? One of the most interesting areas to look at is probably prenatal testing. And anyone who, who's had children already will know that if you want to test uh, a fetus for Down syndrome, it's quite an invasive test with some risk to the unborn child. Well, this is all really changed now with genomics. And if you want to find out whether your fetus has Down syndrome, what happens is the mother gives a blood sample. And this is then uh, sequenced and in that blood sample, you can find cells from the fetus and you can decode the DNA in those fetal cells and you can pick up the presence of Down syndrome just simply by taking a maternal blood sample. And that's phenomenal. And that's just one simple area of genomics. So give us a sense of, of this new business and what, what kind of companies are involved or what are they doing? So there's a whole corporate ecosystem sort of emerging around the production of this data and there are companies that are trying to produce this data faster and faster, there are companies that are trying to analyse it better and there are companies vying to store it and also others who are using it for diagnostics. And so there's a sort of very wide range of possible things you can do with it. I mean, at the, the production end of the market, you have Illumina, which produces most of the world's DNA sequences. And the market at the moment is worth about $3 billion, but um, it's going to grow substantially uh, to about $12 billion by 2020. And there's no guarantee that Illumina is going to be in the driving seat all the way up to 2020 because there's a lot going on technologically. There are a lot of improvements to DNA sequencing happening right now. And so it may be that another company comes along with a different technology that's better. And how about the storage end of the business? That That's growing too, right? Yeah, it's growing enormously. And it's so much data is being produced. It's kind of hard to get a sense of how big, truly big is. But I was talking to one CEO, Craig Venter, who runs a company called Human Longevity Inc. in San Diego. And, and they have about 28,000 human genomes at the moment. And they want to get to more like half a million. But with only 28,000 uh, whole human genomes, they're talking about four petabytes of data. And, and this, is, this is really big data. I mean, if you think about it, one single human genome is about 120 gigabytes. And so who's going to store all that data? How do you transmit it? And, and the fact that this is a really big market opportunity has not been lost on any of the big cloud storage companies, such as Amazon, such as Google, such as Microsoft, all the usual suspects. OK, so already a multi-billion dollar industry in itself and already having an impact on IT and, and data storage. But ultimately, it holds out the promise of revolutionizing medicine across the board, right? We're all going to have personalized medical treatments that are uh, designed with our specific genetic attributes in mind. Is that right? Yeah, and that's that's really exciting. And that's obviously the promise of all this technology. And you don't have to go far to sort of find places where it's already being used. And I think oncology or cancer treatments is the first area that's the beneficiary of this sort of personalised or precision approach. And, you know, that approach is starting to bear fruit already. This data is growing and the promise is, is enormous, absolutely enormous. Well, for once, a heartening item on Money Talks. Uh, Natasha Loder, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Edward. That's it for Money Talks this week. If you're looking for more Economist radio coverage of the EU referendum, do listen to our special pre-referendum podcast from last week. And on Friday afternoon, we'll be running a referendum reaction special. Goodbye.